Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody. It is Friday uh, afternoon. Man, it's, I, I really need a break. It's, I'm ready for the long holiday weekend. That's what it is. It's Friday. It's 1 p.m. on the West Coast. So you are listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. Carmen is gone this weekend, uh, so we will hopefully see her next week. Uh, but it's great. I love this, that we have an in-studio guest this week. Uh, and on top of that... He's a Navy vet, which, you, as you guys know, I love it when we have fellow shipmates, Navy people on the show. So we're really excited. And this week we have an apparel company, Alpiphany, which is uh, sort of this not long underwear, but short underwear. And we'll, we'll really uh, dive into that with the founder, Jimmy Stanley. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. You you happy big, Labor Day weekend Friday. I was going to say, are you have big plans for the for the weekend? I'm actually working starting tomorrow, so I'm pretty excited. I, well, I fly for an airline, so uh, nice. work is not does not suck. Let yeah. me tell you. We're going to talk about this because you uh, you were a fighter pilot in the Navy, which I'm uh, super jealous. I as a kid, you know, you you and I look like we're pretty close in age, but I was uh, when I saw Top Gun, I was like, I'm going to be an F-14 Tomcat pilot. That's what I'm going to do when I grow up. And of course, uh, I wasn't. I was chipping paint and chasing Russ on the ship. Uh, so total. 180 from that, but uh, but yeah, I'm excited that you're here, man. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah, so so let's dive right in, man. Uh, you know, our, our listeners want to hear more about who Jimmy Stanley is, so let's talk about your Navy service. What was the sort of thing, the the epiphany, if you will, of nice of, one of getting into into the Navy? Well, I always wanted to fly since I was a little kid. Yeah. I mean, I even wrote, I think, a. a book report about helicopters when I was in third grade, I think, and always wanted to be a pilot and always dreamed about it. And uh, the epiphany moment that came for me, I was pretty lucky, was one summer when I was in eighth or ninth grade, my sister was dating a guy who just finished his first year at the Air Force Academy. Nice. And so uh, I was able to sit down with him, got him for 45 minutes, and I said, you know, like a lot of people, I didn't know how it worked. Who flies what airplanes, you know, do Air Force airplanes fly on ships? I, I didn't know. And so he uh, sat me down for 45 minutes, explained to me how, uh, who flies what kind of airplanes, how the service academies work, what's the difference between the Air Force Academy and the Naval Academy, West Point. And once I understood all that and the difference between enlisting and going uh, to college and getting an ROTC scholarship or going to uh, the service academy and becoming an officer and becoming a pilot, I knew that was the track I was on. So from like ninth grade on, I was focused on becoming a, a naval aviator. And I originally thought I was going to be a helicopter pilot, and I went to college thinking that because uh, that's what I was dreamed about, just lifting off. But uh, once I started to... Uh, my studies and doing the ROTC program and reading the magazines that were laying around, uh, you know, uh, describing fighter pilot stories and safety, uh, safety stories and things like that. I was reading a lot about the jet pilots and I thought, wow, that's amazing. And so I really, uh, knuckled down, got good grades, went into flight school in the Navy and, uh, did really well, kind of sponged it all up because I really wanted to be there. And I ended up getting, doing really well in flight school and uh, got selected for jets, did the jet training, and then I 
went uh, and got selected for F-14 training and became an F-14 pilot to start out in the Navy. So jealous. So jealous. What was that like, though, that to be in a Tomcat and take off off of, you know, ships? And I, I, I have no context about what that's even like. Oh, you must have seen it when you were out on deployment a couple of times. Uh, I was on these little, carrier. yeah, right, exactly. I was on these little, these little bobbly bit boats that are, you know, to give people context, carriers have 5,000 people, right? That's right. I think about 5,000. Yep. We had 250. Yeah, so I like know. It was it's small, <laughs> super small tiny tin can that rocks yeah. side to side a lot. That's right. Oh my god, that would but, make me but so sick. The, exactly. That's what we would always laugh because we would have uh, guys that we'd take to the carriers, and as soon yeah. as we brought the lines in, forget about it. They were puking over the side. Oh yeah. I mean, we hadn't even gotten out of port yet. Oh and these man, guys that, are, that probably would have been me. Yeah, but no, I could fly a jet airplane and ride on and land on a carrier, but uh, riding on a frigate would make me so <laughs> sick. <laughs> yeah, there's there was times we went through Hurricane Opal, and I remember waves going over our boat. I mean, that's oh, how wow. tiny it was, but. Uh, but yeah, that, that must have been a really fun experience for you. What, what's, what's the best story that you have that you could share, obviously, of being a fighter pilot uh, in, in during your, your time that you think is like, wow, I can't believe I was involved in that. Oh, man, there's so many stories. And I could tell you some, uh, you know, my friends always ask me, did you ever eject? No, I didn't eject. I That's didn't lose good. an airplane. Uh, there's a lot of emer- you know stories related to emergencies, which get pretty exciting. But uh, for me, the, one of the most exciting uh, flights I ever did was uh, launching a Sparrow missile. We, you know, we, every squadron gets a few missiles to shoot every year just sure. for training and practice. And uh, we were out on deployment. We had this uh, Sparrow missile, AIM-7 Sparrow missile, which is a radar-guided missile. And I was selected to shoot it. And the scenario was we were, I was going to sit uh, in the cockpit on the flight deck uh, in alert seven status, kind of like you might've seen in Top Gun where they're just sitting there waiting to go. And then if there's a, uh, enemy aircraft coming in or something like that, you have seven minutes to get airborne. So I was sitting there that was the scenario and I'm, and I, but I knew I was going to go shoot the missile. I mean, we'd already mm-hmm. practiced it. So, uh, it was a beautiful, sunny blue sky day and I'm sitting there waiting for the call and they launch us, me and my wingman. And then, uh, another aircraft that was to- that was, uh, that had a target drone that they were going to drop for us. And, uh, we, uh, launched off beautiful day. Uh, got the acquired the drone on uh, radar, shot the missile, super cool, and then uh, me and my wingman uh, did some dogfighting because we had some extra gas, I and mean, it was just a beautiful day. And then we came back to the carrier, and I landed like got the best grade, the OK three wire. It was just one of the best days overall in the Navy that I can, and I still remember to this day. Yeah, no, no <clears throat> combat though. No, I have actually, yeah, you know, now that you speak of it, I've seen uh, a fair bit of combat. I was involved in the Kosovo campaign in 1999 Mm. where Serbia invaded Kosovo and and it was mostly an air and uh, special forces campaign on the ground. And uh, we were the only aircraft carrier involved for the summer of 1999. So I probably threw, flew uh, 30, 40 missions and dropped uh, a lot of bombs on in the Kosovo area against those guys. So, uh, it's a, it's weird, you know. It's it was exciting and uh, and crazy time, but uh, you know, it's also as you get older, you realize well, it's wartime, and they were fighting for their cause, and right. you know, we were supporting our cause. So, but um, I have you know quite a bit of experience for that. Not not really an experience in the Pers- either of the Persian Gulf Wars because I I missed the first Persian Gulf War. I was still in college, and after the second Persian Gulf War, I flew. Uh, missions over uh, Baghdad and Mosul in support of the ground troops carrying uh, weapons on board. So we were kind of on-call air support all the time. But I never dropped anything during that, that later period. That was in 2005. Yeah, see, you like I said, you were right when I was in. I was in from 94 to 97, missed the first one, kind of missed the second uh, one as well, uh, but was able to, like, go into Kuwait City and see the, you know, them rebuilding and whatnot. But uh, that's really cool. What was your, what was your call sign? Steamer. Steamer. Steamer Stanley. Stanley Steamer. 
<laughs> of course. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I like to say it's like a carpet cleaner yeah. and, or actually like the car. I finally found a Stanley steamer car near a, in a museum here near Portland in yeah. Hood River. Uh, my friends, when they gave me the call sign, the fellow pilots give you the call sign in the squadron. Yeah. When they gave it to me, they were thinking something completely different. So I'll let your imagination go with that. <laughs> well, you're a Navy pilot, so, you know, yeah. that's uh, Navy. But I liked it. It was better than never the other PC. Choices. Yeah, it was better than the other choices they wanted to give me, so I've, I've adopted it and embraced it. You have to embrace your call sign. If you don't like it, it'll, it'll never leave you. <laughs> Mine in the Navy, it wasn't a call sign. It was a nickname. I got a short round. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, if you yeah. guys can see this guy in the studio, yeah, he's... I'm six foot tall, so it's, a, it's <laughs> irony is what it it's is. It really is, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you, you're, you've been in the, the Navy, you're flying jets. Uh, what, were, what, was the, what was the thing that you took away from the Navy that you now look at as an entrepreneur that was sort of your guiding principle uh, or learning lesson that you took away from the Navy? So uh, I'm going to maybe answer your question a roundabout way. Um, when I got to my last... Uh, let's say I left the cockpit in 2006 and I went to the Pentagon and I was able to get an MBA through the Navy executive MBA through the Naval postgraduate school. And that really opened my eyes to, you know, I wanted to do something a little bit different and get, um, you know, more rounded career from just being a pilot. And that opened my eyes to the to bigger business and the business opportunities. And when I started to look around, I'm like, wow, there's just business everywhere. And I really want to do something more than just be a pilot. I love being a pilot, but I was hoping someday to uh, have my own airplane as opposed to flying, a, you know, a, an airliner around in the sky, which can, which is fun, but there's, uh, there's other challenges I was looking for. So I got this MBA and, uh, and that started me on the path of thinking what kind of a business idea could I do? And I, and I started my last few years in the Navy reading entrepreneurial ideas and reading some of the more influential books like Four Hour Work Week and things like that. And I, and I thought, okay, I'm going to get out and I want to start something on my own. So um, the last couple of years I was living in Italy and uh, thinking about moving back uh, to the U.S. and what kind of ideas I could do and, and what I could work on. And I actually uh, retired and uh, spent a year thinking about uh, what exact idea I wanted to do. I researched uh, importing something from Italy. I went to Italy for a couple of weeks and uh, researched uh, espresso and coffee and, uh, and um, ceramic espresso cups and things like that. I uh, like the coffee industry, and um, but then I had this uh, apparel idea that had been kind of percolating ever since I lived in Italy and I was skiing mm-hmm. with some friends. So that's that's ended up that's the one that I ended up going up with or going uh, starting with. Nice. Uh, so you you get out of the the military. Do you do you go right into the business stuff, or you do you go in the working world for a while? So <laughs> that's a really good question, and I have a good opinion on that. So I took a uh, I took a. Everybody before they leave the military has a uh, what do we call it a tap class where you Taps. have to yeah it's yeah. A, it's you know it's a transition assistance program that uh, it's like usually a week long class that kind of gets you helping uh, get your resume together and mm-hmm. and shows you how to look for jobs and things like that and I even took an executive level one where it was three days of executive level uh, senior very senior officer level type of uh, training. And I remember them saying, you know, uh, you might want to do something on your own, but you should really get out of the Navy and just go do what you know right now. Mm-hmm. Just go work for a defense contract or something. Just take a job right away and give yourself a, you know, a year or two to see how it goes in the civilian world before you do anything on your own. And I thought, no way. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to do it like the, the book said, and I'm just going to jump right into it. And that's what I did. Now, having looked back on that, I would not recommend <laughs> that to anybody. I would say, yeah, you should definitely get a little sure. bit of a job and get some income because I... Uh, I relied on my savings, and uh, I um, I spent about a year researching what kind of idea I wanted to do. And once I picked one, then it was another six months to a year of getting the idea going, mm-hmm. uh, the business of Epiphany going, and then um, and uh, and then I also moved to a new place as well. So there was a lot of changes in my life, and I think uh, having a job would have been 
um, what would have smoothed the transition. And now I do have a regular job. So yeah. we can talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. We're going to take a quick, uh, quick break. You mind if I, if we do that? Not at all. That's perfect. Uh, today's episode of Veteran Startups is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize handles all communications with the media and content required to do the job, uh, press releases, editorials, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for your future, uh, for the future of your business. Check them out at publicize.co, and you can tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. We are back with. With Jimmy Stanley of Alpiphany, it is uh, an apparel company. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but I want to first tell you, talk to you about, um, you know, things that you did. You know, you were researching this company uh, for this company. What were some of the things that you learned along the way uh, of learning about the apparel industry that you didn't? Obviously, you, didn't, you weren't in that industry before. You were in. The I industry know, like, of shitting your pants and doing loop-de-loops and yeah, stuff. Yeah, you know, flying a jet really fast and yeah. wearing a flight suit all the time. Yeah, so different, right? So what was the thing, what what caused you to go into the apparel business? So I know it sounds kind of random, but uh, but it, it actually, when I think about it, I didn't think about it consciously, but when I think about it now, it, it, it wasn't random. My father owned a men's clothing store oh, wow. when I was growing up. So uh, I grew up going to the store or playing around in this store full of men's clothes. And my sure. father and his, and his brother, my uncle had this uh, small empire in the Northeast. They had several stores uh, in the Philadelphia area, and my father had a store in Atlanta, and we grew up there around that. And then I came to find out that my grandfather um, operated a men's uh, clothing factory. He produced slacks for Hager slacks. Oh, wow. And uh, he he managed this factory in upstate Pennsylvania for probably 30 years, and I actually got to visit him one time at the factory. So, And my my grandfather, my other grandfather, was also in clothing. So I know that... uh, that it was subconsciously in there. Maybe there's some subconscious, you know, maybe I should get some, some, uh, somebody to psychology help to, you know, pick apart why I po- picked, uh, um, apparel, you know, cause my dad did it, but I don't know. It, so, it was in your DNA. Yeah. It's kind of in the DNA yeah. and the blood. And maybe I just thought, and then I also read about uh, Liz Claiborne and how she started her company. And, you know, when she passed away 10 or 15 years ago, it was a billion, multi-billion dollar company. I'm like, Hey, there's a lot of clo- money in clothing, yeah. you know, there's just, just, just tremendous. And, and uh, recently I've heard the story of Lululemon and how they got founded. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of money in p- apparel. So, I lived in Italy for a couple of years and uh, saw all the great fashion. I would I always say that men in Italy are like peacocks. They are they are better dressed than the women in Italy. I mean, they are just they're incredible, especially in the Naples area where men just really uh, dress well. And I thought, gosh, you know, uh, when I moved back to the U.S., I thought, boy, these you know people in the U.S. just dress. We dress more in jeans, more casually. But men in in Italy, they just wear slacks. They wear just a sport coat. They always look they always look really great. And I'm like, gosh, we could bring that kind of thing to the U.S. That would be fantastic. But I also had interest. I had this idea about uh, skiing and this actually formed when I was skiing in Italy with a, with a fellow Navy buddy who, uh, we were getting ready to go. We were in the, we were in the locker room, putting our boots on, getting our stuff on. I remember he was, uh, pulling the ski pants on and all he had on was running shorts. And I thought, well, Hey man, aren't you going to wear some long underwear? And you know, he's like, Oh no, I'm a big guy. And I, when I go skiing, I get really overheated. I just need running shorts. That's all I need. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me for a while. And I'm like, huh. And then I went skiing that day and I'm like, yeah, it is kind of warm in long underwear. And then later on I went skiing, uh, some other places in Cortina d'Ampezzo. And I remember uh, meeting this old Italian guy on the ski lift and I started talking to him and he was super nice. And I said, well, can I ski with you for a while? And uh, it was Bruno Alberti. And he said, sure, Jimmy, <laughs> come along, you know, and we're speaking Italian. And so we're skiing along and I come to find out that Bruno was uh, 
1956 and 1960 Italian Olympic ski team. And this is his local mountain. And he just skis every day for a couple hours. And we, we I ski with him. He knew everybody on every lift. Everybody's like, hey, Bruno, how are you doing? And uh, But just keeping up with this guy who was 70 years old was, was tiring me out. And yeah. I was just sweating like buckets. And I had long underwear. And I'm like, okay, there's got to be some other. And it's got to be something short I can wear mm-hmm. that will, uh, you know, still keep me, my core warm, but, uh, you know, won't overheat. I, you know, the, the pants are good enough. And, um, and so I went out into Cortina all over town at the ski shops, couldn't find anything. And I just kind of remembered that when I came back to the U S a year or two later, I looked around at ski shops for the same thing. It just doesn't exist. There just doesn't exist any shorts that, uh, you could wear. They're specifically designed for wear under ski pants. I mean, you can just wear smart wools or whatever, but that's sure. kind of thin. That's like more like underwear. And I was thinking more like athletic shorts, like Nike shorts crossed between, uh, biking shorts, you know? Right. And, um, since nobody was making it, I thought, well, why don't I make it? Maybe this is my start. Maybe this is the way I can uh, get my foot in the industry. So you had your alpiphany. Yeah, I had my alpiphany, <laughs> which took a year to come up with that name. When I started the idea, I was working on the prototype for uh, a year before I came up with that name. And what were hit, some of the other names that you had? And it hit me overnight. Oh God, I had like hundreds of them, you know, yeah. like, um, uh, I can't even remember right now, but, uh, all, uh, it was just weird. You know, um, one night I was sleeping <laughs> Uh, I was, had a bit of a head cold and I woke up in the middle of the night, I was just thinking about things and all of a sudden I'm like, well, it's like, I really, it's an epiphany for me that I want to make, uh, you know, snow trunks yeah. and I didn't even have the name snow trunks. So I said, it's epiphany that I want to make apparel and, and, uh, I thought about it in the Alpine environment. It's like Alpine and epiphany, Alpiphany. Oh my God. It just, that's how easy it came. <laughs> and then not, not even like 15 minutes later, I'm like, well, what do I want to call the product? And you know, they're like shorts, snow shorts and scundies and all these th- different names thrown around and then finally i'm like they're tr- like swim trunks but for the snow they're they're snow trunks i mean that's literally what happened one night all both of them together nice so so you, so you when when did you incorporate this uh this company so uh i had been working on the prototype for a whole year and then uh i think um i made a small production run and that was it was right after that when i was getting ready to sell thing no i was actually right before i was gonna make the production run where i had to start paying people sure. to do things that i wanted to be a company that was paying them not just myself right. so i uh incorporated here in portland oregon uh, in, uh, January uh, of 2000. In fact, I incorporated on the day of the epiphany, January 6, 2016, I think. Yeah. Okay. So it's almost been three years, nearly three years. And That's in that right. time, what, what have you learned in those three years? What, what's the biggest learning lesson well, you've taken Well, it's a lot so tougher. Far? It's a lot tougher than I thought it would be. And sure. really marketing has been the hardest thing. And I've never done any marketing and I'm probably not the best salesman. My dad's a great salesman, but I've never been the best salesman. I've been always a kind of an operator and like to get out and do things. So, Learning how to do that. I mean, learning how to going and uh, finding a designer was not that hard. You just got to dig around. You find a designer, you give them the designs. You go out and uh, I went to L.A. and I found the pa- fabric. That's you know that's not that hard. And finding a warehouse to do it that took a little bit of struggle, but you sure. know eventually find it. But then getting out there and selling it, and having the guts to get out there and and uh, stand around and, and and just you know get it in front of people. That's been the toughest thing. Um, the first. The first uh, season that I made it, um, I took it with me to uh, skiing with friends and with my friends, and I showed them all, and they were super cool. They all bought a pair. Um, showed it to my family; they bought a pair. I mean, everybody that I show it to kind of loves it, but uh, getting it out in front of people has been the hardest, and learning the marketing has been a real struggle. And then, and the other, I'll tell you the biggest lesson I learned is to have a regular job. 
and this and while you're doing your side gig and i've seen that over and over again in the other uh, founders podcasts that i've listened to is to uh, have a regular job a regular income something that's taking care of the bills while you're uh, while you're working on your side gig you know and five, i did it in the reverse yeah and five years ago you know that was the other way around especially if you were looking for funding right a lot of startups if you were trying to find investors or you know do some sort of investment uh, they wanted to see that you were quote all in Right. And so now it's starting to change a little bit. The mindset's starting to change where you're seeing more sort of leeway about how um, how involved you are in the company versus, you know, are you all are you all in? Are you working as a side gig, et cetera? So um, it's awesome that that you were able to, to that you're able to still do this and have a, a real job. Yeah, I think it um, that might be dependent on what kind of industry you're doing. Maybe sure. tech is a little more like we want to see you all in. Yeah. But when you're doing something like apparel, where it's just kind of a you're and you're kind of doing it on my own, it's you know definitely more important to have a have a regular job and then do this as a side gig. And it, and it never really took 100 percent of my time. So. But uh, I moved up to Portland three years ago to work on this, and uh, and I was starting to look. I looked started looking at jobs as soon as I moved up to Portland. It just took me a couple of years to end up back in the cock. I ended up back in the cockpit. <laughs> so are you? Are you're you're just a team of one on this then? Yeah. Wow. And and then how you just outsource the manufacturing to other. Yeah, well, I found a uh, cut and sew factory to make an initial run. I kind of felt looked at it as a as a test run. I did sure. about 250, 225 uh, units. Uh, sizes small, medium, large, extra large, just because I thought, well, you know, what if I don't know if it works or not? I haven't done any focus groups. I don't know if people really like it. There's mm-hmm. no real demand. It's just like I'm. It's something I'm throwing out there into the market and seeing if people really want it. Although I know, and I've done my research, I know that people do only wear um, underwear under their uh, snow pants. I know that people forego. I know a lot of guys that uh, forego uh, long underwear. Uh, because they get overheated, so they're just wearing either uh, basketball shorts or running shorts in, as a replacement. Um, and I found this out by doing some research, and then I ended up working with a uh, um, a business school class at Portland State University who took on the snow trunks project and did the same thing. They took snow trunks to the uh, ski area in Mount Hood and uh, interviewed a bunch of people, and they found out the same thing. About a third of the guys that they talked to do on, do not wear long underwear. They only wear something short. So the market is there, but yeah. how to reach that market is uh, is a is a big challenge. So have you have you looked at distribution? Like what's what's that process for you to to get into some sort of distribution channel? So I figured that I would be driving around to ski areas and uh, just selling it out of the trunk of my car and just showing it to people and saying, sure. "How do you like it?" Uh, but I didn't have a car that could drive to ski areas, so I kind of put the cart before the horse <laughs> on that one. Um, finally, got an all-wheel drive car this past season. So. Nice. Uh, um, I also, the very first, when I first made these, I drove to some of the local ski shop. I, I drove to actually every ski shop in Portland area and I asked if they would carry it. And I found two shops that would carry it. One in, uh, Sandy, um, on the way to Mount Hood, uh, and the other one, well, both of them on the way to Mount Hood. One is in, uh, Clackamas, I think. And, uh, they put it in there for, uh, a whole season, just hanging them on the rack with a tag on it and uh, and actually had a brochure that they taped nearby that people could read about it and and they had one of each size I just gave it to them and if it sold they were going to pay me and uh, it sat in there for a few months at the end of at the end of uh, the season for 2016 17 and um and then also a store in Boise Idaho I was happened to be in Boise Idaho and went to a bunch of stores there and I got one to carry it for me um 
didn't any didn't end up selling anything so i got all that product back and then i tried again the next season and the only and there was only one store here in the portland area that would take it again hmm. i don't even know if they put they took it i don't even know if they put it out in the rack to be honest with interesting. you interesting but um i did i was able to get into stores and i and i still have a website presence there but um but because of the fact that i didn't have a job and i was running you know uh, running out on the savings that i had from uh, that i'd saved up while working I uh, kind of put that all to the side and I started to work, focus full time on getting a job and and working full time and just thought, okay, I need to put this to the side for a little bit mm-hmm. so that I can focus on my own, ish, um, you know, my own income sure. and work that, that yeah. direction for a while. Uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, tech being sort of this separate thing, but, uh, you know, in some instances, I, I talk about um, every company needs to be a tech company in, in some regards. How much does... Uh, does technology play into your business and how do you exploit it, if you will, to the benefit uh, of getting information out there about your product? Well, uh, let me think about that. One thing I like to say is that I, I, since I moved to Portland, I've been way more connected to the tech scene than I ever imagined that I would be because I joined NetSpace, which is a co-working space and it's just full of tech companies and everybody I've met has been fantastic and I'm gotten to know uh all the tech companies in portland uh through uh once a year tech crawl and, and other events and so I, I mean like wow i know a lot about what's going on in tech in portland but that's not my business and but when right. i talk to tech people about what i'm doing they're like really excited wow you're in apparel that's so cool uh but um i had to create my website on my own and you know kind of taught myself that it took a few months to do that mm-hmm. um then i also used a uh, linkedin training to look at marketing and uh, you know do the marketing courses that are on linkedin um and then talk to uh, tech friends who are just super go-getters about, you know, building, you know, tech is kind of a product. Even if you build an app, mm-hmm. it's kind of a product. No, absolutely. Yeah. And so we're, we would go out for beers and talk about the parallels and what I could do uh, and how, you know, they would try to help me with with uh, my idea. And finally, kind of like, an, I guess, somebody building an app, one of my friends said, you know, just go make it, just go build it, just mm-hmm. go build it. And so that's when I actually went out and I really originally wanted to do like a, I, um, to find out if there was a real market for this, I wanted to do a... Uh, um, crowdfunding campaign, uh, maybe a Kickstarter. And I was thinking about doing that. And my friend said, just go build it, just go build it. So I ended up making a couple hundred units, um, just to see if I could sell it. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I did sell a few to friends and family. I still have a couple hundred units left. And uh, now I'm actually revisiting the idea now that I have a job and some money, revisiting the idea of doing a Kickstarter campaign and using the product that I have right now, uh, as giveaways as part of the Kickstarter campaign and raising money to change the um, design of the product because I think it's a little even it's two or three years old now and I think it's a little outdated and I mm-hmm. think I could update it and make it look better and still get it out there. Nice, yeah. I, I think one of the things that people don't understand when they start a business is you're everything, right? You're the CFO, you're the CEO, you're marketing, you're all the customer acquisition, your sales. Um, did, were you anticipating that that was going to be a big as big a challenge as it has been? Uh, no, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a pilot. We're pretty organized folks. And we do, we, uh, before we go on a flight, we brief everything that we're going to do. And then we do the flight and then we debrief everything we do. So mm-hmm. I know that, you know, planning wise that I felt like, uh, well, if there's any challenge that came up, I could do it or I could meet it. And I was able to, uh, you know, like I said, get the, get the, um, the snow trunks made. In fact, the first year I was the very, before I even did anything, I uh, made a few phone calls and I got a free ticket to go to the, um, outdoor retailer show which was which is held twice a year used to be in utah now it's in colorado but there's a summer show and a winter show and i made a bunch of phone calls found this uh, this industry-wide event called outdoor retailer 
and uh, called, contacted them and said, hey, I'm a new, new person thinking about it. And I got a free ticket to go th- to the show in Salt Lake City for you know three or four days. And uh, every major retailer of outdoor apparel, outdoor equipment, outdoor soft goods, hard goods, whatever you want, is at this show. It is like the biggest. Um, there's one more called Snow Sports, and they do, uh, they do once a year in Colorado. But I went to the big one, outdoor retailer, and I walked around the show floor for three or four days to see if anybody was making the idea so that mm-hmm. I wasn't going to, you know, do something that was already out there sure. and waste my time. So I was able to over- overcome that just by, you know, hustling and making phone calls and, right. and just being honest with people. And, and to be honest, uh, every industry has people that really, you know, they, they want to see you succeed. They mm-hmm. want to see any small business person with a good idea succeed because it brings new life and new, new uh, blood to any industry. So I was able to do that. Um, able to source a designer, you know, I met, I've, I've overcome all those hurdles. I think the hardest hurdle to overcome is the one within me, which is to push myself and get out there and become a marketing person, a salesperson, which I, you know, don't have any experience in. Sure. That's, uh, that's the challenge that I'm still, still working on. And, and how do you think you're going to overcome that? Well, now that I've uh, taken out some of the other variables in my life, uh, you know, sit down, uh, maybe do some training and uh, make a plan or sit with somebody, you know, and I I had this uh, uh, MBA or business school class from Portland Portland State University help me and write this uh, 30 page report about how to how to better sell snow trunks. And they had some great ideas. They love the brand Alpiphany. They love the branding. They love the style, the logo. They like the... uh, yeah, they like the little mountain logo thing. Yeah. And they were like, you should make some T-shirts and hats and, you know, get that, just get Alpiphany, the word out there. Get the yeah. get the logo out there. People, everybody we showed it to loves it. I'm like, oh, that could actually be a, that could be sort of a direction changer. Just start making T-shirts and make money. You know, T-shirts are easy. I could, uh, you know, start generating some income just on T-shirts and hats alone and, and just getting the name out there. Yeah. So maybe um, rethinking how I'm attacking the issue of getting into the apparel industry. Cause I have a specific idea about, you know, bringing more fashion into the outdoor apparel industry. Um, and just how to get my foot in the door. What's the right direction to do that in is, is, is the biggest challenge of all is really the, the, the bottom line challenge. I, I would imagine I, you know, I've, I've done a few startups and I know that as you were talking about the parallels and I'm, I'm thinking about like things that I had done in my startups as well, there are the same challenges, right? You don't, you don't know what you don't know. And, and once you get it in the hands of somebody to get feedback, then you can start to iterate on whatever it is that you're working on to make it better for your audience. Um, who would you say is your core audience for snow trunks so the core audience is likely somebody between 18 and 35 to 40 who likes to ski and likes to snowboard um i think it's a more youthful you know like it's that younger age not the older age who, uh, sure. people who are a little bit lower tend to run colder so they're going to want to wear long underwear um and uh i mean we have i have a pair of these right here in the uh, in the studio they're black and white right now because it's the simplest easiest fabric to get sure but i would love to see it in like a camouflage color to appeal to the you know the current style and what people are wearing and um see if uh it generates interest you know just as a cool pair of shorts that somebody can throw on and then throw on their ski pants over it and uh you know to reach those i would probably need to uh get a table at the, maybe one of the uh, industry shows oh, that's really expensive or just show up at a ski mountain and sit in the parking lot and start selling or try to do something like that or 
or go to the shops on the mountains uh, in the ski areas and just um, get people to carry them. But I think I need a flashier, more interesting looking uh, branding overall. That's why I was thinking about uh, some sort of crowdfunding campaign to kind of generate a little bit of income on that. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good uh, that's a good idea. Uh, as far as some of the things that you've <clears throat> intaked to learn all this stuff, you mentioned PSU, you mentioned some podcasts. What are some of the books that you've read, or some things that you've you've uh, that you? <laughs> I know I'm going to put you on the spot. This is yeah. what this is all about. Uh, so, what are the, what are some of the things that resources that you've learned that has really helped guide you into your entrepreneurial journey? So, I've probably read every one of those. Uh, cool uh, entrepreneurial books that have come out uh, like i mentioned that the, the uh, ford four hour work week is yep. it? tim tim ferris i mm-hmm. read uh, you know read tim ferris and follow start him with why yep start yeah. with why and uh and there was one another one uh, with the bicycle on the front cover i forget that guy's name but yeah. uh, he wrote a really good one yeah, yeah. and a bunch of others that I, that i've written i've read uh written by entrepreneurs who are just like go out there and you know what it's all at that those all are great reads, but it's like, that's like puppy dogs and unicorns type stuff. I mean, it's really, that doesn't, it motivates you, but it doesn't really help you to like get down to the nitty gritty of what do I need to do? I'm so glad you said that. So there are a few few books that I think every entrepreneur should, I think start with why with Simon Sinek is, is the best book that every entrepreneur needs to read that. Because if you don't have your why, you don't understand what you're building. Right. So, but other things like Shoe Dog, right? I, people love oh, the Shoe film, Dog night, is a right? Great one. Right, and they love it. And I read it's it a twice. great, yeah, it's a great inspirational book. But to your point, right? What did you take out of Shoe Dog that you're like, I got to do that for snow trunks? Holy, I mean, when you read Shoe Dog, some Phil Knight's uh, story of how yeah. he started Nike. I mean, he worked his butt off in reality. Mm-hmm. He, uh, but he actually kind of started like I'm starting. He was in his parents' basement with a bunch of shoes sitting around, and he had to go sell them. And he went to track meets and sold shoes out of the trunk of his car. I mean. And then, uh, you know, that kind of took off and he kept doing it at different track meets all over the West Coast. And yeah. I mean, but yeah, he did work his butt off to, in the beginning. So yeah, the lesson learned is you got to work your butt off yeah. and just get your product out there. You got to get your hands dirty. And, um, and he, then he used all the money he made and bought more orders. I mean, that's amazing that he's, that's how you start. Yeah. That's how you start. So I learned, you know, a lot about that, but he, but even he said he didn't like selling mm-hmm. except when he sold shoes. So that was a very inspirational one. Like, okay, yeah, it is. It can be done. It can yeah. be done. You just have to go do it. Yeah. Um, I uh, found um, there's two books actually that are specifically written for uh, apparel entrepreneurs um, by two. Uh, I think it's two different women who wrote a book about the making apparel and uh, and the entrepreneur. And, and they're like uh, they're like they're like textbooks. They're like eight, uh, they're like a college sized textbook. Uh, it reads like a college size textbook, but it, every chapter, there's a chapter on how to design, how to make, you know, how to, how to calculate costs, how to calculate, uh, numbers, how to, um, how to decide which sizes and how many of each size you need to make. There's a lot more. And, oh, sure. you asked me what I learned. The apparel industry is really complicated. Oh my God. It is so much more complicated <laughs> than people realize. It's still a hand, everything is made by hand in the apparel industry. So right. when you, uh, you know, go by, I mean, it's unbelievable. Somebody has to decide how many of each size of shirt or pants to make, and it's all made by hand still. And I mean, it's really a labor-intensive industry. It's amazing. So even though there's a lot of money to be made, it sounds simple. It's it's it, and there's a long lead time in apparel. I mean, up to a year. Um, things are designed a couple of years out, and then they're manufactured uh, six months to a year out before they're even sold. So I learned that uh, apparel has a long lead time. Interesting. Yeah, stuff fashions that you're seeing out in the street right now were designed two years ago, so it's isn't that wild? Yeah, that's crazy, and and 
that that's just nuts to me. I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. But uh, but it's good that you're 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 diving right in, even though uh, you're, you're still. How often do you fly as a as an airline pilot? So as an uh, gosh, um, half of the month. I mean, I'm I work four days on and two or three days off. Wow. And so. is it just overnight trips or is it short yeah, trips? Yeah, the four four day trips are like away from home for four days. Wow. And so are they overseas? I don't, no, I, don't, I work regional right now. Do you? Okay. So I've been at, I was out of the cockpit uh, my last seven years in the Navy. Um, and then when I retired, I was uh, out of the cockpit another three years. So I was out of the cockpit about 10 years and was living here in Portland and uh, looking at consulting jobs and, and different ideas. And then I said, boy, you know, I'd like to get back in the cockpit. It's been 10 years. It'd be, it's a lot of fun. And, and I looked around about how I could do that. And that's when I realized that airlines are hiring like crazy. There is a pilot shortage and well, Hey, I've got the skills to be an airline pilot. I mm-hmm. should, maybe I should do this. And, and it was just a really easy path to take. I mean, once I, uh, I went out and got a few hours in a Cessna to get current and uh, applied to a few airlines. And as soon as they saw me, I, I had job offers right away. Nice. Uh, I started with a regional airline, a small airline, because, um, I'd been out of the cockpit for 10 years and a major airline like Delta or United or American uh, wants to see some, some hours of currency, a couple hundred hours. So, but the regional airlines are more used to people who, uh, who have different backgrounds and uh, maybe don't have the experience. So, you know, the fact that I, that I have, uh, <laughs> a lot of Navy experience, but hadn't flown in 10 years, like no problem, you know, we can work with that. And, uh, that's how I entered. So I've been working for uh, horizon airlines regional for Alaska for about a year now and a few more months, hopefully I get an application into one of the majors and which is, uh, which it will double more than double the pay. So that'll wow. actually give me more uh, runway, more flexibility sure. to work on the side gig. Yeah. And and what's the difference? I, obviously, these things go much slower and you're taking off on a much bigger runway, but and you have to sort of interact with people that you didn't have in your plane before. But you know, what's the, the main difference, you think, between fighter pilot and, or, or even an even better question, what are the parallels between being a fighter pilot and being an airline pilot? Well, the, uh, it's the same kind of flying. It's a jet. Sure. It's a jet. And so they all have the same kind of takeoff speeds, the same kind of landing speeds, the same, roughly the same handling. Jets handle pretty, pretty well. Uh, the biggest uh, difference is that uh, I was doing everything on my own Yeah. in a fighter jet. I mean, I was the only pilot. And uh, so, and the, the, um, the military designs these fighter jets is pretty easy to fly. I mean, the switching, everything is pretty simple and, uh, you know, it's like they've simplified all the steps and procedures. Whereas in an airline, there's two guys, two, two pilots, excuse me, it could be a man or woman sitting next to each other. And there's a thing, there's a checklist that have to go back and forth between the two of them and uh, shared tasks. So, and also it's a bigger cockpit, so you can't reach everything on your own. You really need two people in the cockpit in an airliner. So, um, whereas in a fighter jet, it has all the same stuff, but built for one person, which is super cool. So the uh, parallels are, it flies almost exactly the same and it lands the same and, and you know, it's, it's talking is the same and flying uh, up at high altitudes, the same, the same issues, the same stuff. It's just, um, well, learning to flare, that's another thing, you know, that I had to do. I land on a carrier, I landed on carriers. So uh, in the Navy, all, all, car- all fighter jets, we land the same way, which is just kind of slamming it down onto the ground. Yeah. Uh, the landing gear can take it and we do all our landings that way. Whether we're on the carrier or we're at a field, we just, we just fly a glide path all the way down and just, just slam it down. Whereas in, uh, in the airline world, they want you to just kind of <laughs> grease it on. And, uh, Hey, you know, I can do that. I'm a, I'm a professional pilot. So, uh, sure. I learned pretty quick how to, how to grease it on. So yeah. that's, 
that's probably the biggest difference I've learned. But uh, I've had a couple couple hundred hours underneath my belt again now, and uh, yep, I'm making some good landings. That's awesome. Some very good ones, yeah. Um, like I said, it's it's one of those things. I, I grew up uh, colorblind, so it was one of the things that uh, yeah. precluded me. However, keeps you uh, out of the cockpit. Yeah, it keeps you out of the cockpit, but I still stood watch. In the Navy. Yeah, is, well, that's okay. Yeah, yeah they don't gray, care about green that. Green lights out there on the on the surface of the water. That's okay. In in the Navy, when you go in, a lot of people don't know this. You have to take this dot test, and it's a black background, and there's these little LEDs, right? And each one is there's two on top of each other, and uh, and you have to uh, you have to decipher which color you're looking at. And they would do it, and I would be like white, white, white white and uh and after a while the because i got my coast guard six-pack license after i got out as well to do to drive towboats and uh and and the lady she's taking this sweet lady she is the lieutenant coast guard lieutenant she's like uh how the hell were you in the navy and i yeah. said well and i look at her ribbons i was like well that's blue yellow red blah blah and she's like okay pass i have no idea why i can't pass that test right but you know i can see it's pinpoint of light yeah. yeah yeah so it always precluded me from being able to you know do any of that stuff but uh yeah pretty interesting uh what what you can and get a, can and can't get away with in, in the military in different yeah. in different jobs too so the 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 biggest adjustment to flying in the airlines, and, and I love people, you know, carrying the passengers around, I like seeing the passengers' faces, that's great, but the biggest adjustment has been flying with another pilot, like, right next to me. Right. I mean, I flew two-seaters, I flew, but, uh, but my backseater was in the back, you know, yeah. behind me, and we weren't sitting next to each other, but we uh, talked a lot. I talk a lot in the cockpit because we had to communicate with the person behind me because they couldn't see exactly what I was seeing, and vice versa. But having sitting in a cockpit with somebody like right next to you, I mean, you better that person better be a cool person. They're, that's that's what's going to make the whole trip is whether they're right. cool or not, whether they're doing their own thing, whether they turn and chat with you a little bit in between. The, you know, when there's a little bit of time, uh, do we share stories and things like that? And that's what's that's what's made uh, the job interesting. And I, yeah, I can definitely it's a it's a good trip when the person you know we engage and we chat and, and yeah. have you know tell stories and swap stories. But um, if the person the other person is uh, just quiet oh man it's just yeah it's, it's uh, yeah it sucks the fun right out of the cockpit <laughs> we're gonna take a quick uh break real quick is that cool yeah cpa dudes where accounting is never boring their price is not based on time instead customers decide what to pay them they don't charge you for sending invoices phone calls emails texts or meetings they just get the damn job done find them at cpadudes.com forward slash startup radio we've been talking to jimmy stanley at alpiphany it is a apparel company they wear they they make uh snow trunks which are basically just as they sound trunks that you wear under your clothes when you go skiing or snowboard so you're not sweating your your cojones off i yeah. would imagine right like, keeps your core warm yeah without yeah. heating yeah and i have that problem being a, a big fat hairy dude but um so, so so these would be great for me i i would love to uh to try them if i ever took up snowboarding which I don't. Yeah, they would be fantastic. And uh, I encourage anybody to give them a try. If you, can, if you want to check them out, you can go to www.alpiphany.com or, or snowtrunks.com, uh, spelled just like it sounds, and you can check them out and order a pair. So I've got a couple hundred left. That's awesome. You know, you asked me earlier about uh, some of the things I learned. And I remember when I started out, I read um, some things about... You know, focusing on uh, what you need to focus on yeah. in terms of a business, which is sales, sales, sales. And I thought, well, once I get these made, you know, that'll be, uh, that'll come. But I did some of the other things that, you know, you maybe, I remember people saying, don't worry about the business cards and don't worry about the marketing or don't worry about the, uh, the that's easy stuff to make. You know, don't worry about that. Go out and sell. And uh, I probably got caught up more in making the business cards and making the website and things like that than I probably should have. I probably should have spent more time just going out and selling, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, I have these really awesome business cards. I, I had I hired somebody to make these really cool brochures that I could take. The purpose of was to take to the stores with a pair of snow trunk prototype and say, "Hey, can you put these on your rack?" So I have I now we're, I have this beautiful box of uh, beautiful brochures sitting in a closet at home waiting to be used. <laughs> yeah, and I remember my dad saw them and he and he the, this is the man who owned a retail men's clothing store and and he liked them so much he's like put one in an envelope and send it to every ski and snowboard store you can think of and, and just see what you get. Yeah. Because uh, mail still works really well. And I was like, oh, I don't know. You know, they're they're kind of expensive. Each each copy was like, you know, cost me a couple of dollars. And, and he's like, uh-huh, okay. And he didn't say anything more. And you know what? A year now, looking back, that was like a year and a half or two years ago. I'm like, yeah, why didn't I stick those in mm-hmm. an envelope and sell them, send them to every single store that I know of? Yeah. So those are things that I should have done. I can still do that. Sure. But... Um, you know what, maybe, uh, maybe I was too, um, you know, I wasn't listening as well as I should have, or just caught up in some other things. I don't know what I was caught up in, but, but, uh, yeah, I should have focused more on just the selling part of the job. How important is it for you <clears throat> to find people in the industry like your father or, you know, or other people in your family that have done this to, to be a mentor? How, how important do you think has that been for you as you go through this process, oh, I wish I had a mentor or I wish I had a co-founder. In yeah. fact, I'm, I'm always like, my ears are open to see if anybody wants to get involved in this kind of thing. I have found people who used to work here in Portland, who used to work at Nike or used to work at Columbia. And That's I have true. sat down with them and had coffee. I actually sat down and had uh, coffee with the founder of showers pass, which is a local maker of uh, high quality biking gear, biking apparel that is like super waterproof biking apparel. And he has a factory right here. And he used to work for, I think, Nike or something like that. And so I sat down with him for half an hour and he explained to me how hard the industry is and how hard he's had to struggle with his little company, even though it's a mm-hmm. kind of a famous company here, Showers Pass, that uh, it's not easy to get, a, get it off the ground, especially if you have a really super focused niche like he does or like I am with this snow trunk. So um, I have, but you know, that's their, they offer what advice they can and they come in for, you know, to your life for a few minutes, they offer some advice and whatever they can. And then then they kind of move on mm-hmm. and that's not really, you know, they're at such a high level in their industry. That's not, I didn't think it was helpful. I mean, ultimately it comes down to who can help me sell. Right. And I have a, I have a buddy of mine who's a good salesman. I'm like, Hey, will you sell some snow trunks for me? But he's always focused on some other project that he's doing. So if I could find somebody that's like, you know, can help me sell or hold my hand for at least the first, you know, week or two. Yeah. I think that would probably be the most helpful um, yeah. immediate change. Yeah. To get the company going. It, it's, it's fun. It's not really funny, but it's interesting to me that, um, no matter who I talk to, and I've talked to hundreds of entrepreneurs, um, we still tend to, and I've done it too. We still, we make the same mistakes our predecessors made. Right, we we go through and we, you know, make the business cards, we make the brochures, or we go build a product that, and we try to perfect it before getting it in the hands of somebody. Right, like, you know, you're pointing at me, but I mean, we we all do the same things over and over and over and over again, um, and it's just it boggles my mind why we just continue to do that. You know, and you know what? That's you just said. You just said something great that uh, I, oh God, I almost forgot about that. So we tried to perfect the product, yeah. and uh, thankfully that's not something that I did. I uh, I I had a few prototypes. I got to the uh, snow trunks to where I liked them, and uh, and I said, okay, they're ready to go to market. They're ready for people to try and buy them. 
and they're not perfect by any means and they can be approved upon. But mm-hmm. I was like, you know, it's ready. And then a friend of mine said, why don't you just make some? I'm like, you know what, darn it. That's right. I will make, and I made 250 or 225 mm-hmm. and that's not, that was a small investment. You know, I didn't spend a lot of money on that. So yeah, I have these product and I look at them and I'm like, yeah, they're not perfect. I really want, there's a lot I want to change about. I want to make them better, but you know what? Like you said, it's good enough. I should get these in the hands of some people first before spending any more money trying to change it or perfect it. Um, yeah, because people will end up telling you what they like and what, what they don't they like. Want. Yeah, exactly. What they want, right? They want it in, you know, an Alaska. They want a tie strap or they, you know, rides up when they do this. Like these are data points that you'll be able to utilize as soon as people are out there doing it in the field. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I so think why? that's a lot of people don't uh, get that or they overlook that just trying to perfect their product before getting it in the hands of somebody. Absolutely. And I got an, another season coming up. I can get out there now and uh, get these in the hands of some users and see what they think. And as a matter of fact, another another thing people told me was, why don't I just send them to influencers? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, geez, these are really expensive. But you know what? Like, what's a few thousand dollars of getting them in the hands of influencers if it's going to net me uh, a business? I know that uh, I, you know, I thought I always thought that Kevin Plank from uh, from um, Under Armour, you know, sold, you know, just he was a good salesman. He said he always had good luck selling stuff, and I thought he just got going by selling Under Armour. No, he knew a lot of football players from his time uh, going to the uh, university and he got them in their hands and they were NFL players, you know, and he got this Under Armour logo out. He Mm -hmm. just gave it to them. And I'm like, darn it. Yeah, I need to just give this thing out there, get this out there. And that along with, um, it sounds kind of weird, but making stickers and just getting, you know, even though it is like business, making business cards and making Mm -hmm. things, but making stickers and something that gets the logo out there is another thing that like gets the name out there. So whatever I can do to get the name out there is uh, something that I'm going to, probably uh, focus on for this upcoming season. You hear that, Chloe Kim? Jimmy's coming for you. <laughs> uh, this has been great. I, I'm absolutely enamored with this. I think I think you're onto something. I really genuinely think you're you're you have something of value. I, I think you have a niche thing, and that's I think that's another mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make is they go too broad, right? You have found a lane, yeah. and you have stuck in your lane. Oh right, man. yeah. When I talk to apparel people in general about like a apparel, they everybody thinks they have to have a line of apparel, right? Um, uh, you know, if you're going to start a, a ladies' clothing, you're going to you have to have a line of ladies' clothing. What do you? What does your <laughs> line look like? Yeah. And I'm like, oh my god. Well, everything every story I've heard is no. Everybody started with uh, you know, Damon John the shark. You know, he started like selling hats, mm-hmm. and then he and he sewed them, and then he sold, and then he sewed up other things. I mean, he started one piece at a time. Lululemon, I think he started one piece at a time. He yeah. sold men's men's bathing shorts, I think. So, yeah, I mean, picking a niche and sticking with it yeah. and getting started with just that niche and then yep. adding on to your line as you go along is is uh, the right way. to Don't jump in and try to do everything at once. Find a niche. It's something I said over and over on this show. Jeff Bezos, when he created Amazon, he didn't say I was going to do, you know, virtual servers and drop oh, shit on like people's houses with drones. He said, I'm going to be the biggest bookstore in the world. And when he was, he, he moved on to the next thing. Do you know what he did? He, I, I mean, if you've read the book, yeah. he, he I think he had a couple of... Uh, MBA interns, and he said, go figure out what's the easiest thing to sell on the internet. Yeah. So he didn't even care what he was going to sell on the internet. He was just like, this internet thing, we should sell something on it. What's the easiest thing? And you know what? They researched and came back and said, you know what? Books are the easiest thing to sell because they just, you know, it's just a book. People want it or they don't. That's right. You don't have to manufacture it because it's already made. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. What a way to start. Yeah. And, And now I read somewhere he makes $4 million an hour. It's I thought insane. I thought he doesn't it doesn't take a salary he takes it all in stock. <laughs> yeah. That's why he's like uh, yeah. Yeah. If you believe that. But anyway, Jimmy, uh, where where can people find you? I know you mentioned the website a minute ago. 
It's uh, com, And Alpiphany, um, I actually modified the spelling a little bit from yeah. the expected. It's not like Alpine and Epiphany. It's Alpine and Epiphany combined. But uh, to make it viable overseas where the you know language is a little different, I spell it A-L-P-I-F-A-N-Y. Yeah. Alpiphany. Alpiphany. I love it. And uh, and people can find you, email. Uh, oh, yeah. Jimmy at alpiphany.com. Perfect. A-L-P-I-F-A-N-Y. And I see, I see there's... A-L-P-I-F-A-N-Y. F is in Frank. I, I see there's an Instagram and a Facebook uh, link here so oh, people yeah. can find you yeah, on Facebook. Yeah, I've been Facebook trying to do Instagram. Instagram. Nice. Yeah. I love it. Trying to get those snowy pictures up on Isn't Instagram. Isn't that fun? It's... Oh, that's another challenge. Do I really want to be in social media? Yeah. I'm a I'm a game of one, and yeah. I got to manufacture and market and social media. There's a lot of work to be done. It, it's a lot of fun. But uh, thank you for coming on. It's been a blast. I can't believe the hour just uh, flies by. It sometimes. did, yeah, yeah. So Jimmy, thank you so much. Uh, you you've been listening to the Startup Radio Network, the network that brings inspiration and education to startups and entrepreneurs around the globe. Tune in again next week and every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, where you can hear me and Carmen listen, learn, and get shit done. See you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.